Usually by this point in the retreat, the climate in the mind is starting to shift. So it's perfectly natural for thoughts about the ending of the retreat and going home and what we might have to face there to begin to come into the mind. And along with those thoughts, there may come different emotions, different states of mind, maybe than what we've been experiencing for the past however many days. And there's no need to struggle with this experience, with this change in the mind, shift of focus in the mind. This can actually be a very rich period of practice, this in-between time, between being fully in retreat and fully out of retreat. It can reveal a great deal about how we approach transitions, not just here, but in our lives in general. It can reveal a great deal of very useful insight into how we might be feeling about whatever it is that we're returning to or going to. So the practice doesn't change at all at this point in the retreat, or ever, really. (laughs) Can we just let the experience be what it is? There's no need to meddle. As Steve says, this is what has come to be. Of course, how could it be otherwise? Causes and conditions are changing, and this is what the moment has brought us. How do we feel about it? Just staying sensitive, staying responsive, and taking in what this moment now has to teach us.
So feel free to adjust the posture or get up and have a seventh inning stretch if you'd like. Maybe find a chair. So I just want to start by making a few general comments about how to approach the end of the retreat and taking the practice back home. And then we'll open it up to questions. I like to think of coming on a retreat like this as a three for one deal. <laughs> three for the price of one. So there's the before retreat retreat, right? <laughs> Which Steve spoke about really begins the moment that we push that button, you know, that sends in our registration or we, you know, lick the stamp and put it in the mail, that moment that we know that we're going to do this. Um, but then really intensifies, you know, as you all know for yourselves, maybe the week or so before coming on retreat where there's really a lot of uh, activity, both logistically and in the mind, all the fears, all the, the hopes, all the anticipation, which if we, we pay attention can also be an incredibly rich period of practice seeing how the mind deals with anticipation or fear or fantasy. Uh, it can be a very interesting time to really bring a lot of care to our practice. Then we get here and we have a retreat, which is what we've been doing these past, what is it, eight days now, nine days. And then once we break silence tomorrow, we get the post-retreat retreat, which for a retreat of this length, you know, nine, ten days, might last a week or two, something like that. And many of you are old hats at this, right? <laughs> You've been to multiple retreats. You kind of know how it goes. The, the falling apart of the retreat container can be a very interesting experience. And then everything that comes after we leave here. It's very common to have a certain amount of euphoria <laughs> when the silence breaks and the discipline comes to an end. <laughs> and we're not commanding you to be mindful every single moment of the day. Uh, can really be delightful. There's a real momentum of awareness, we find, even without having to deliberately try. There's a real momentum of concentration. Uh, the heart is much more open. We may find that we go back into the world really uh, connecting with experience in a much more direct way, in a much fuller way. Things feel richer. Connecting with people in a much more open way, with a much more uh, open-hearted quality with greater care, with greater connection. And this is okay. <laughs> it's okay to feel happy when we leave retreat. <laughs> really. <laughs> we can just 
recognize it, recognize the beauty in the world, which we are more equipped to take in when we leave retreat. Somebody once uh, on a retreat I was on in Burma asked about, you know, well, why would we want to get enlightened? You know, why would we want to just be empty and flat? You know, we don't feel anything. And I found the, the teacher, you know, this little, little old monk's response very interesting. He said that nobody enjoyed life more than the Buddha. Nobody could possibly enjoy life more than an enlightened being that's really in tune, really in touch with all of the pleasure that there is in the world. So we can get a flavor of this when we come out of retreat. In fact, it's very uh, beneficial, very skillful to notice what is wholesome in the mind when we come out of retreat, to notice the moments of awareness that just come, the moments of compassion that just come, to see everything that's skillful in the mind that will arise when we leave here. We can see it from a different perspective once we're back out in the world of action, in the world of relationship. So that's very valuable. The other side of this, though, is that because we are more open, (laughs) our normal filters, our normal uh, protections may be uh, weaker than they normally are. Our skin is thinner when we come out from retreat. So along with the the euphoria and the pleasure, there can be a bit of overwhelm that comes. And this is also very common. We just get worn out more easily, both physically and mentally. Uh, Certain activities, a certain level of activity that we're used to just seems like too much. So this is the time, especially in kind of the first few days after we come out of retreat, to really take care of ourselves just to recognize that this is very likely to happen. This is the common experience. So we might spend just a little more time by ourselves if we can, Uh, find times to be quiet, really uh, be selective about the media (laughs) that we take in, about the social activities that we jump into, to the extent that we're able. You know, we recognize that there are some of you here that need to um, go pretty directly back into situations in life where there are, you know, big, important, and sometimes difficult things that have to be done. So we do those things. But then when we have a chance to get a little time to ourselves, be quiet, uh, it's important to take that in order to just protect ourselves, give our nervous systems a little bit of a break. The days immediately after the end of a retreat, uh, for this very reason, also are typically not a good time to make big life decisions. (laughs) Tempting though it may be. You know, we have, may have all sorts of great insights on retreat. I'm going to fix this and that person and my job and yada, yada, yada. Wait a little bit. <laughs> Give yourselves a few days or a week to kind of normalize and then, and then pick it up and see what can be done. So there's this initial period of reentry, which can, you know, have some real highs and lows. And then there's the gradual fading away of the effects of concentration, as I spoke about the other night. So that that different way of seeing that we've been cultivating here, the momentum of the awareness, the strength of the concentration, the sense of calm and openness that may come with that, it starts to fade. (laughs) And you can expect that within, you know, as I said, a week, maybe a week or two of going home to feel pretty much like you did before you got here. (laughs) And this is when the the Dharma blues can set in, (laughs) like the the post-retreat depression of, oh, it's gone, it didn't work, it didn't stay. So just to remember, this is, this is how it happens. We've strengthened the concentration, we've strengthened the, the effort, the awareness, and it will return to more or less a baseline level when we go home. This is one of the benefits of uh, 
establishing or maintaining a, a daily practice or some kind of regular formal practice in our lives. It keeps the baseline higher. You know, I, I read some research recently that uh, for this style of meditation, if we meditate just 15 minutes a day, then there are measurable changes in the brain. It's, it's visible on the, the functional MRIs, the structure of the brain changes. So 15 minutes a day, you know, even I can do that <laughs> with my toddler, you know. And many of us can do more, and that's very helpful in life. So the concentration effects will gradually fade, will gradually feel more or less normal. And that's when we have a chance to consider, you know, what exactly happened on that retreat? What was it all about? What did I actually learn? What do I know that I didn't used to know? What is it that stays after the concentration leaves? And for each of us, there will be, there will be wisdom that's there that wasn't there before. Understanding that, you know, just a few days or a couple weeks out of a retreat, our, our hindsight is not very strong yet. Uh, often our understanding of what went on on a retreat continues to evolve. <laughs> so we have a certain relationship to it while we're in retreat, and then in the days and weeks after we're first home, there's another understanding of it, and then maybe a few years down the line, there's a completely different understanding of the value of that retreat and what came out of it. So as Mark was saying last night, to, to yes, reflect. You know, we've been telling you not to reflect on your experience while you're here. When we go home, it's appropriate to reflect. What happened? What have I learned? Holding it lightly with the understanding that, you know, that view may change over time. So tomorrow morning we will break silence, which can be, uh, again, a wonderful or jarring or both experience for each of us. And it's important really to pace ourselves with this. So all of a sudden there's going to be a lot of noise and a lot of activity and a lot of talking. Um, so just to remember that we don't need to have a deep philosophical conversation with every person on the retreat. <laughs> the, the, when we break silence, it's really okay to just you know, make eye contact again, give each other a bow. You know, maybe there's a few people here that we really want to have a discussion of some length with especially those of us that are introverts. You know, it's really not necessary to push ourselves beyond our normal comfort level. Talk to a couple of people just to, to get the voice going again, to get the energy up again, <laughs> so that when we leave the retreat center, we can kind of function. That's really the point of it. And smile at everybody. It's wonderful to, to look at each other's faces when we come out of retreat, and you get to see what we've been seeing all along. You know, the brightness, the clarity, the, the, the open-heartedness that's there. So to, so to enjoy that, to take advantage of it, but not to feel like you need to push yourself beyond the level of interaction that feels comfortable. It's fine to just you know, bow and say to the person that you've been speaking with, I think I'm going to go be quiet for a little while. Everybody here understands what that's like. We can all give each other that gift. And with talking about practice when we get back home, too, this is an area that we want to be uh, mindful about. What do we tell other people about what went on here? <laughs> and this is an area in which we want to practice a certain amount of discernment because speech is so powerful. So what we say to other people about what went on here can really define for us, can really codify ideas for us about what it was that happened, which may or may not be the full truth of what happened here. So we want to protect our faith. You know, it can be really uh, disconcerting if we come out of retreat feeling like, oh, there was so much that happened and so much that we learned and so much that opened, and kind of tell this to our best friend or our partner and have them go, hmm. That can be a real 
blow to our faith and our confidence in what we're doing. So to protect ourselves. I remember um, getting a great piece of guidance from Joseph Goldstein in one of the first retreats that I taught, and he probably still says this, but when his advice was that when somebody asks you how your retreat was, say, great, period. <laughs> End of story. It was great. And cause, because typically that's what people really want to know, right? They want to... <laughs> They want to know that we're okay, that we haven't like flipped out and joined some horrible cult or you know something like that. It was great, a lot, very, very tranquil, very peaceful, you know. And that's all we really need to say about it. <laughs> and you know, so that honors our experience, kind of the richness and the complexity of what went on here. Which, my goodness, can we even convey that to anybody? And it also, you know, reassures whoever is, is asking. And occasionally, there might be somebody who really does have an interest in the Dharma that really does have some more. Some, some genuine interest in getting some details about what went on. So then just to share the things again that were, that were kind of clear, you know, that you can convey with confidence, that aren't pushing too much into the area where you don't feel like you're on firm ground. So I think that's, that's it for just general comments. And now is the time. If you have any remaining questions about the practice or all those questions that you've been saving up about going back home and taking the practice home, this is the time. If there's no self, who is responsible for our actions and words? Mark? I <laughs> 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 said we were going to alternate, but I'm pretty sure you were first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, no self. <laughs> this teaching about no self, it's... It's, it's not, I, I don't like the translation no self because it doesn't mean literally that there's no self. There is a self, right? There's a body that carries around this particular consciousness, this particular stream of memories, you know? It's, it's not another, it's not somebody else's, it's, it's the self's. So it's not that we're not here, that we don't exist. It's that we don't exist in the way that we think we do. So that's what no self is really about. It's really like mistaken self or confused sense of self. So there is, you know, a stream of causes and conditions here, you know, with certain desires, certain life experiences, certain capabilities, and out of that arises uh, what we call intention or impulse, will, you know, decisions do get made, actions do get taken. It's not that all of that doesn't happen, but it's not real. The, the teaching on no self is about seeing through all of that, as Mark was speaking about last night, not being fooled by the superficial or the, the general view of what's going on not being fooled by that broad brush label of me, which me is, you know, as you've seen on retreat, even if this is your very first retreat, me is all sorts of stuff, <laughs> you know, that's the truth of what's going on. So getting that teaching on no self doesn't mean that we just poof, you know, we disappear. It means that we, we are not fooled by the, by the surface illusion of things, that we're here in this very solid, consistent way, that the being that's sitting here right now is the same as that little tiny baby that was born X number of years ago, or that it will be the same as that you know, old little person <laughs> that we might come to be years down the road, but that this is a constantly changing, evolving flux of all sorts of different causes and conditions, experiences of body and mind. Do you want to add? Or? That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to pick one? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, one of the attractions of coming on this retreat and doing the uh, side of 
approach. This struck me as really, really suitable for daily life practice, so informal practice mm -hmm. on, off the cushion. Uh, I think in my case, uh, what worries me is though, uh, I don't think there's a teacher within a thousand miles of where I live who's done this, uh, done this study, just uh, unknown in Europe. Uh, although I'm told he's probably going to come next year to the UK. Uh, so what I guess the question is, do you need a teacher? Is it helpful for, to, to work with this method? I mean, I can see just getting on with it and we've got the books, but at the same time, and my experience in the past has been it's, there are always gonna be problems if you don't have a teacher to refer back to and check out one's experience with. Yeah, so if you didn't hear the question, comment is about generally about having a teacher and in particular with this style of practice um, and how to continue on. Well, the, the thing about this style of practice, even though it may seem relatively unique for some of you in the retreat context, anybody who's seriously into their Dharma practice, this is how they'd have to practice in daily life. What other way would there to be, be to practice in daily life except to have the continuity of awareness with changing objects, basically? Um, so if you find a good teacher who maybe uh, uh, teaches a certain way on retreat, but if that person has really developed their practice, they'll know about sustaining mindful awareness through the day and will be able to support you in different ways. You just need to explain what your, you know, what, how your formal practice, why you're doing it that way, why you're finding it valuable. And, um, and I don't think it's as unique as people think. I think the, it always feels, these, these shifts sometimes feel really seismic, but a lot of it is just different language and just our way our mind wants to categorize things, Saida Utejaniya's approach, you know, and it becomes sort of a thing. It's this perceptual process I was talking about last night. But for example, in England, um, there's the Thai forest tradition is quite well established. And although they do do concentration practice, a lot of them practice very much this way all the time and have for years. So you can check out some of the nuns and monks at Amaravati or wherever else they may be teaching and the other people who practice with them because by now people have been practicing with the Sangha there a long time. So there are probably a lot of lay people too who really know what they're doing in the practice. And then just a general thought about teachers. I mean, we're in this strange time where there's so much good Dharma online, in person, in books. It's almost too much. And uh, so I don't think the problem is so much finding a teacher. It's more about skillfully using teachers or teachings that are available to us. How to use this information and taking responsibility for integrating with integrating it with what we know. One of the things I sort of stuck in my mind and Deborah was talking a few moments ago, she was talking about uh, when people are asking you about the retreat and for those few people who really want to know, maybe ask more than once and you're going to share a little bit, Deborah said something, you know, but make sure you stay within you know, the bounds of what you really understand. And uh, 
part of that is uh, owning, integrating, owning, reflecting on what we know. And you'll find this in the suttas where the Buddha talked about not only do you have to find a, a teacher, you know, but that the, and gain confidence enough that you're going to listen to her or his teachings. But then once you've heard the teachings or read the book, then it's really incumbent upon us to memorize a few things so we can recall them on the fly as we're living our life. So we've heard a lot of teachings. A lot of what we need to do is this reflection piece. What teachings have really resonated? Let me make a note. Let me memorize that so I can, at the beginning of a set, articulate back to myself how I understand the practice, how I understand one or two of the edges, learning places in my practice right now. So to clarify for myself. And then the nice thing about that is then if we do that, try that a couple times, but we're just not clear, then we know how to use a teacher because we want to clarify that particular thing. And then we can look in books, look at the index, find that section that relates to this particular confusion in our mind about the practice or get someone on the phone or if you have a connection with the teacher, send them an email, say, you know, could you help clarify this? And the teacher will say, you know, give a response via email or set up a phone conversation or if you have one local, then to see them after a program or something. To really take responsibility for making the relationship with the teachings uh, healthy, whether that's with a particular person or a spectrum of people that you have relationships with or a spectrum of books, and then you clarify it when you come on your next retreat with the person. So there's no right or wrong way. A lot of it has to do with circumstances, except that there's a lot of resources now So there's plenty of room to be creative in how we have a healthy, wise relationship with teachings. And sometimes that includes teachers, and sometimes it's teachings we've received from teachers via a book or a talk that we downloaded online or heard in person, but don't really have a personal relationship. But that doesn't mean we don't have a personal relationship with the teachings, which we definitely can do, and that can be healthy regardless of whether we have a personal relationship with the teacher. There's one hand way up in the back. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm just curious, how many people are here in the room that are uh, in a significant caregiving relationship? So either caring for children or for a lot of us, it's our parents or, yeah, a lot. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, children or anybody else who depends on us, you know, can be great teachers. <laughs> because that's a very intense relationship with a lot at stake, you know, and especially children really <laughs> know how to push our buttons, just as you're saying. Um, so it's a very rich practice, the practice of parenting, and very demanding. It's really wonderful when we can get away, for those of us that are able to get away and have some time like this just on our own. <laughs> so we can take a good look at our own mind, our own heart, you know, what's our side of the equation, which is so important to know. And then the, the practice is really the same in the relationship, right? It's seeing what's going on in the heart, <laughs> what's going on in the mind, what's coming up. The, um, there's a teaching that it's not the circumstances of our life that are a problem. You know, so we may be very enmeshed in uh, parenting or other caregiving and career or, or projects, big projects that are important to us. And it can feel so much like those are a distraction or like how am I ever going to get any clarity in the midst of this? But those circumstances are not actually the uh, difficulty. The difficulty is the defilements. I love the title of Utejaniya's book, right? Don't look, on, look down on the defilements because they will laugh at you. They'll laugh at you here and they will also laugh at you at home. <laughs> you know? So the, this is one of the ways in which the practice really remains the same. It's just cultivating this ability on an ongoing basis. Okay, what's going on in the heart? What's going on in the mind? What's the intention? What's the aspiration that I'm coming from? Am I coming from, in this moment, am I coming from a place of rage <laughs> and frustration, or am I coming from a place of compassion? And, you know, in ordinary life, we're not going to see that with the subtlety and the resolution that we're able to see it here on retreat. But by practicing, practicing it here, then hopefully when we go back home into all the messy circumstances of our lives, we're better at it. Not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. Well, not until full enlightenment anyway. Some, somewhere out there. <laughs> but hopefully we're better at it. We can pick up on more. We can remember more that that's what we should be doing. We should be looking at our heart, looking at our mind. That's where we want to be placing our, our energy and our effort. We should be connecting with our aspiration. This is part of the Eightfold Path, the practice of wise thought or wise aspiration. So we can remember every day. We can remember every hour. <laughs> we can remember sometimes every moment. Where do I want to be coming from in this exchange, in this situation? You know, I want to be coming from a place of kindness. I want to be coming from a place of compassion. I want to be coming from a place of letting go. The more we remind ourselves of this, of what, what we, we really aspire to in our lives and in our relationships, the more it helps to keep us on track. So the practice of aspiration is really supportive. The practice of oh, just general awareness in our lives is really supportive. And the, I've found the practice of the Brahma Viharas also to be invaluable in dealing with children. So taking some time, again, as we're able for ourselves to, to deliberately cultivate that attitude of, general, of, of genuine good wishing, you know, so that we can see more clearly when is it all about me and when is it actually about them? When am I actually tuning into what they need? And there's also the practice of forgiveness, forgiving ourselves for all the times that we mess up because we mess up all the time. Forgiving ourselves for be hum being human. Forgiving ourselves for having the very natural, you know, powerful attachment and craving that we have around our children. So there's lots of different elements that we can bring into the practice of parenting. I've also found it to be a great practice of renunciation. 
You know, we've got to, it's easy to go off and be a monk in a little hut someplace. <laughs> That's easy. But can we let go day by day, hour by hour, moment by, by moment of what we would prefer? <laughs> you know? So there's a lot in parenting. Yeah. And there's, as also, as Mark was saying, there's a lot of great resources out there, too, now this, the, among the community of parents and um, parent practitioners that have written great books. And so there's a lot there to tap into. The really interesting thing about that question is, you know, in your own mind, where is it coming from, that question? Like, why? So one thing I really like that Gil Fronsdahl said, he said something like, this is a rough paraphrase, Buddhism isn't so much about the meaning, like the meaning of how things got set in motion. If you didn't hear his comment or question, how did this force of karma of cause and effect or the wheel of karma gets that emotion. And Gil said something like, it's not so much about what's the meaning of it all, but what's interesting for people doing this practice is the need for meaning. Right now the mind's need for meaning. And uh, the, the other side of this is discovering in practice, and this is very good, I think, for daily life, going home practice too. Um, Discovering a a tolerance and actually a liberating quality of being with ambiguity, being with what's undefined and unknown, unclear, not yet resolved. And that particular for from the point of view of our human heart, our conditioned mind or heart, we might want it nailed down or defined or have a story that makes sense. But can it be okay to let things be unresolved and unknown? To be living in a world where we don't know what the beginning was, how it all began, for example. Um, can we still uh, live a good life, cultivate wisdom and compassion in this life. And I find that really uh, enlivening, like not to need to know. And it's related for me and like needing to be right, having to have the right answer about things. It's like in the places where I'm realizing I don't have to have the right answer. I'll just tell a funny story. Some of you might have heard about this, but the uh, Achan Chah, was this great Western or Thai monk. And then he set in motion a a lineage of students that are monks and nuns practicing in the West, Ajahn Sumedho being the most senior. So there are several monasteries in Europe and in the United States and Canada. And uh, there's been some really entangled stuff about nuns and the, the role of nuns in that tradition. And you know, uh, Theravada Buddhism, most forms of Buddhism, they're coming out of cultural context and uh, generally these cultural contexts 
women don't have equal rights with the men. And that goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And so, anyway, it's been a very entangled, difficult process. And Ajahn Sumedho, near the time of his retirement as the abbot of Amaravati, was doing a tour here in the West. And he was at Seattle. A friend of mine was in, at his talk in Seattle. And at the end of the talk, it was Q&A. And they asked, somebody asked Ajahn Sumedho about the situation with the Sila Daras, the uh, women who, who have ordained but don't have full bhikkhuni ordination, and just about that controversy. And Ajahn Sumedho began to launch into some response, and a few seconds in, he stopped, and he said, I don't have to have an opinion about this anymore. Because he, <laughs> he had just retired. And... Uh, as an outsider, not really knowing all the details of the situation, it seems like one of those things, I mean, I can get revved up about the right way or this, you know, this is how I think it should be. But when I really reflect deeply, I know that I don't know. I don't know how this community of people interested in the Dharma should resolve these issues. I don't know. And I'm okay I know, I, I know my heart aches about injustice, you know, and about things, uh, not uh, accessibility to the Dharma to practice, maybe not the same for different people. So my heart aches, but that doesn't mean I have clarity about what to do. So this is just an example of wanting to know how it all began. It's learning to be okay with the not knowing and uh, see that that's not doesn't slow us down. It actually clarifies the mind, like what actually is uh, relevant in terms of the practice and what's not relevant in the practice. And so much of honing in on what the practice is is letting go of what's not the practice. And a lot of what we think is the practice is the Buddha's teachings are going to provide the truth or tell us what's going on on a conceptual way. But it's really the teachings are a pointing to a practice. That's why we use that word so much, to a process working with our mind in a particular way that sets in motion this transformation or purification of our understanding. Hmm. Yeah. So the question's about how to skillfully make decisions, given the causes and conditions are constantly changing, 
we may not see a certain circumstance the same way from day to day or even hour to hour or minute to minute sometimes. Um, this is you know, kind of related to Mark was, what, was, what Mark was just saying, which is that we don't really know in an ultimate way what's going on here, you know, either in the bigger context of kind of the, the universe or just in the very immediate context of our lives. You know, we never know how the decisions that we make are going to play out. And really it's impossible to make the right decision. There is no right decision, right? There's just the best decision that we can make in the moment, given the information that we have, given the understanding that we have. And seeing this and coming to some acceptance, you know, whether intellectual or on a deeper emotional level, is, is a big part of equanimity. This is what the, the, the traditional equanimity phrases speak to, really, that we can never really be sure you know, what's going to happen. You know, we can try our best to uh, make decisions that are going to be supportive of our own happiness, of others' happiness, but there's no way to guarantee it. There's no guarantees. So this is why intention, that practice of right thought, right aspiration, is so important, because that's what we can really put our energy into, our effort into. That's what we can, what we can really cultivate. So we can't be sure that the decisions that we're making are going to be for the best. But we can really cultivate and connect with the, uh, the impulse in the heart that it may be so. Connecting in the moment. This is the best decision I can make now. May it be for good. May it be a good decision. One of, one of the better decisions I can make, given the circumstances. So, so cultivating that practice of, of wise intention, wise aspiration, uh, really helps to ground us in life really helps to, to uh, promote the cultivation of equanimity. That right in this moment is where we can do the work. Connecting with what the actual motivation in the heart is, as much as possible cultivating a wholesome intention, a wholesome aspiration, and then opening to the truth that we have no, way, no, no idea, no way of knowing how it's going to play out, for better or for worse. And however things come to be <laughs> as a result of our decision, then that's the, the next place for decision, next place for wholesome intention. Um, I hope this isn't in the same bucket as it's, it could be this or that, but um, what I'm just puzzled about the use of the word defilement and if it's important to see it as a defilement rather than a hindrance or a torment, like to, I relate to torment. Hindrance somehow has that like, well, it's in the way, you know, kind of as a practice and not as far as understanding maybe the path or the, the way to whatever. But, but defilement has this really negative concept in my mind. So, you know, among those three, like, is that important to think of it as a defilement? Is there like a, a clear definition or difference? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question because language actually, and maybe unfortunately, really matters. So we have to take responsibility for the words. And sometimes things just get set in motion because of translations and culture, like the culture at IMS and who our teachers are and what gets imprinted in our minds. or And then it's hard. And then once... A, a certain word has a role in the IMS culture, you know, it's, it's hard to buck the system a little bit. 
So no, I don't think it's uh, important to use the word defilement. And so they're different, these words point to different things. Like uh, I think I mentioned in one of my talks, the three unwholesome roots. So you can think about the roots, like in terms of cause and effect, the roots of unwholesomeness in the mind. What are the roots of that? Like greed is an unwholesome root. And it has, it can express itself in different ways. There are a lot of different shades or qualities of greed. Same with aversion as an unwholesome root. And then one of the longer lists of unwholesome qualities, I know Ajahn Tanisaro, I think, translates as the effluence or the outflows of the mind. Or some uh, Buddhist teachers, scholars use the word floods, the floods. This idea that what tendencies, unwholesome tendencies of mind sort of sweep the mind away into some, let's say, obsessive pattern or contracted state. So it's nice to have words that are somewhat descriptive, that that somehow point to the actual experience. Those are the best kind of words, instead of words that are mostly just dualistically judgmental, you know, good versus bad, evil, evil tendencies of mind. (laughs) (laughs) The nutty, nutty bits. So the question is about if we examine our thoughts in detail, then they'll lose their power, right? Or how can we do that? Yeah. It might refine that a little bit. It's, it's not so much that we need to examine them in detail. You know, we don't need to really dissect them with a scalpel, like on that level. It's just simply to bring thinking into the realm of what we can be aware of, what we can understand is happening. So thinking is a dimension of existence. It just happens. To the extent that we can get comfortable with that, be able to maintain some presence in the midst of that, then we can move through our lives with greater grace, with greater ease, with greater insight, with greater wisdom. So it doesn't have to be this very detailed dissection. It can just be as simple in the moment that we notice we're thinking. We just notice we're thinking. (laughs) Just simply taking in. Thinking is happening. 
And we might see more or less detail of that. We might get some real sense of the quality of the uh, emotion or mental state that goes with that. We may get some clear sense of the, the kind of the type of story, the channel that the mind's on, whether it's planning or remembering, that type of thing. Or we may just get tuned into this general sense that the mind has been active. Mental activity is happening. And that's really the way that everything loosens up. So we don't have to make it happen. I've been talking with a number of people in the last couple of days pointing out that usually we, we don't know when insight is happening. Sometimes we do. Sometimes the mind might pick up on it, the thinking mind, the analytical mind, and tell us, oh, now you're seeing this, now you're seeing that, pointing things out to us. But most of the time, insight happens really, I don't know if it's on a subconscious or an unconscious, on a pre-verbal level. The mind's just seeing, this is the way it is now, this is the way it is now, this is the way it is now. And all of that is being taken in and absorbed by the mind until at some point, ding, you know, the light bulb does go off and we really get it in a more forceful way. And that can be very transformative. So it's, it's very much just this process of, of, you know, as we keep talking about just gathering data, what's happening in this moment, what's happening in this moment, what's happening in this moment, whether it's thinking or anything else. And it can seem for a long time like not much is happening, <laughs> but don't believe it. Something is happening there. And at some point, it will become clearer. Yeah, so if you didn't hear, the comment question was about posture and about how much pain we should work with and, and maybe more generally just how to relate to the posture. And uh, she mentioned that it worked reasonably well for four days, but then the pain increased and now it was quite significant. So uh, I don't need to tell you all, for almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone, Physical pain and sitting, and sitting still, is a very important teacher for us. We learn a lot from physical pain. And it changes, um, but basically it's a good teacher for us. So keep that in mind. And of course, there's no right or wrong way to do it. So except maybe try not to bother those around you. But beyond that, there's really no right or wrong way to do it how you take care of this issue. Because remember, sitting practice, what that's really about is finding the ideal conditions that support the mind settling down. 
So there's just something about sitting where the body generally for most people, most of the time, can be in this balance between relaxation but also being able to sustain alertness. So that's really the point of sitting down. And then walking is a counterweight to that where, because we can't sit forever, and walking, you probably can guess, supports more alertness than the tranquility. But it, it really depends on the individual and a particular time for that individual, it can shift where walking actually is working better than the sitting and as we get older, you know, people generally find you can't just use one posture all the time unless you've avoided straining your joints during your life. And so people who are on a nine-day retreat might change it a little bit, sitting on a bench, sitting cross-legged, sitting in a chair, maybe even doing one lying down practice once a day. So there's no right way to do it. And in terms of the, the question you asked about, well, how much pain is okay? How much pain is okay, Steve? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, as long as you're learning, it's okay. But when you're consistently, consistently not learning from it, meaning the mind is retreating to reactive patterns or shutting itself off from the flow of experience after several attempts, then that's a sign that all the mind is doing is reinforcing aversion of one form or another, or denial. So at that point, if you can, then make an adjustment, release some of the pain, move from sitting to standing, stand for five minutes, let the pain dissipate, or stretch the limb out, or basically whatever you need to do that isn't so disruptive for the people, if people are around you. You know, um, there's a lot of wisdom written in books. When we read it, it's knowledge, not wisdom. So we can acquire a lot of knowledge about other people's understanding and other people's wisdom. But the kind of wisdom that is liberating of our conditioning is the kind of understanding we come to on our own, or through our own observation of experience in our own bodies and minds. So while reading books or listening to Dharma talks or even having a teacher point out uh, behaviors or attitudes that are, let's say, not skillful, that 
we can, we can kind of toe the line and kind of follow their guidance. But until we make it our own, through our own experience and understanding, it's not really the kind of wisdom that is going to liberate the mind. So, yes, we can get a lot of guidance, directions, pointers of how to practice, how to act, how to speak, how to be in the world, but we've got to try it ourselves. One of the qualities of the Dhamma or the teachings of the Buddha is ehipasiko. Come and see for yourself. It's not primarily a matter of belief. You know, even if it's a very wise person, even the Buddha said, don't take, don't take, you know, just what authorities and the spiritual elders and tradition or the consensus of the community says. Don't take that as being the truth or wisdom for you. You have to find out for yourself. So, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek guidance and suggestions and pointing out and things like that. But this is ultimately, in the end, it's only your own mindful awareness that is going to tell you whether what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're believing is causing your heart to contract or to stay open. Yeah? What does that number one thing mean? It still comes from a lot of like you. I don't, I don't like know. You. Your sheet from the, your talk, your first talk. My first talk. <laughs> what was that about? I think, I think it was that uh, right view has to be pointed out. Oh, 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 right view. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Sariputta said that in, the, in establishing right view about the nature of this self, you know, the self-view, that has to be heard from another. But that doesn't, that doesn't give you the wisdom of that. It just lays a track down in the mind for when practicing to see, the, see things this way will be liberating. But just because you hear the, the right view from others, from another, doesn't mean that you have it internalized within your own mind, within your own heart. So yes, you do have to hear it, but you still have to practice in order to realize it for yourself. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> I have, uh, we're going to take a break now for uh, about a half hour and then come back to some other um, course closing announcements and travel arrangements and stuff like that that I and others will share with you. So we're going to break now. Uh, we'd still like you to keep silence while you go into the, go out and do your, get a drink, whatever it is you need to do. But as you leave, Vance and I are going to be teaching a class, a series of classes in Seattle over the next couple of months for teaching Utejaniya's method of practice to those who are 40 and under, 40 years old and under, millennials, Gen X, and Gen Y, ers. And we need a publicity photo of a group of people like that age. So, <laughs> some of you are, are excluded. 
<laughs> but there's about 25 of you who are listed as being 40 or under. So if the rest of you could go and the 40 and under... <laughs> this is do you remember? You know, this is... Then uh, Elizabeth is here and hopefully we can get a couple of photos of those 40 and under to... You never know. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, and me too, but I'm not going to be in the picture. So if we could do that, then we'll gather back here at 4 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.